Our reading this morning is from 1 John chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Claire. This is great. Oh, thanks, Thomas. Uh, I don't mind telling you guys uh, that... This morning, particularly, I am really glad that uh, his strength is made perfect in our weakness, because <laughs> I feel pretty weak. Because um, it's, it's another tricky passage, another tricky, um, another tricky chapter of this book. Uh, what we do here is we take books of the Bible, and we just work our way through them, and, and try and work out what God has sent to us, and, and we trust that his spirit works through his, his, his word so that we can understand it, and so it becomes clear to us, and we apply it to our lives. Um, so if you've been here the last few weeks, um, we've been in this book of 1 John, which is this letter that John uh, writes to this group of churches in Asia Minor, what is probably now modern day Turkey. Um, and he's, uh, there's these false teachers here trying to lure them away from the truth about Jesus and saying, you've heard this about Jesus, but what about this? Or creeping in with this false teaching and there's division in the church. And he's saying, listen, I want to set the record straight. I want to set the record straight about who Jesus is. And he gives them these vital signs. That's why we've called this series Vital Signs. It's these signs that there's actually life uh, in the church. Look at these things, John says, and you'll know if you actually have, have, have the life of Jesus in you. He says, you, you need to have right belief in Jesus. 
Do we understand? Do we actually believe the right things about Jesus? Do we, uh, do we believe that Jesus is who he says he is, right? That's the, that's the core of what our message is. That's the, the core of what, we'll be, what we teach here every Sunday. And, and when other people teach up here, that's what they're going to be teaching as well. Jesus is who he said he is. If he's not, then we're misguided, <laughs> to say the least. Um, and we have right obedience to God, right? We saw this a few weeks ago. If we love Jesus, if we know, if we see him for who he is, then we'll do what he says. And then we'll love one another, a right love for one another. And we're going to get into that big time today because this is where John lands in this part of the letter. And last week we saw um, that we're living in these last times, right? We're, we're now in the last period of history, um, the, the period between Jesus ascending to heaven and coming again. And he says, as we live in these times, we need to remember that we're anointed by Jesus with the Holy Spirit and he's going to lead us into truth. He's going to show us how to navigate these times we live in. We're going to obey his commands and that's going to lead us to eternal life. This full, true life which is our reality now and our hope for the future. So it's this now and not yet reality that we live in, right? We have this full and true life but it's going to be made complete. It's going to be, we're going to experience it to its fullest someday in the future. And maybe by now you'll have come to realize that John likes to say and call the church little children, right? We talked about this before. He's a really old man, and uh, he, he just sees uh, everyone in the church as, as, his, as his spiritual children. But this, today, in this section, in chapter 3, at this point in the letter, he introduces this idea that actually uh, we're, we're also God's children. We are God's children. The Christians here are God's children. And as he um, unpacks this concept for them, he's saying that, we're God's children, and as such, you're going to have certain characteristics and traits of what it looks like to be God's children, right? Because like it or not, we all, uh, we, we all bear the traits of our, our parents and our family line, right? Um, and I would probably say that a lot of you have things about the way you look <laughs> and the way you act or your personality that you hate, so you just blame it on your parents, right? No, just me, okay. So I don't know if any of you have noticed, right? But I'm bald, okay? Don't know if you've ever noticed that or not. Uh, it's true, don't have any hair. So I started losing my hair when I was 21. Like, come on, God, 21? Seriously, didn't even have a girlfriend around, just like, just a bald and 21-year-old. Like some kind of old man child. Um, so, I, uh, so the first thing I wanted to do was find somebody to blame for this because it wasn't fair. So of course I would blame somebody. So I'd heard something that it comes from your mother's, it comes down through your mother's side of the family. So I went to mom's house and started looking through all the old family photo albums and uh, granddad bald, uncles bald, great uncles bald, everybody bald, apart from the women, all bald. So I didn't really stand a chance. And I looked on, looked at my, my dad's side, bald, 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 bald. Everybody's bald. So all I'm saying is that we finally enjoy that hair <laughs> while it lasts because you had 21, son, that's, that's going Poor guy. Did you see him in like Spider-Man today? Like buff. <laughs> it's really funny. Buffest he'll ever be in his whole life. Um, but th that's what it's like for us as the children of God, right? We, we, we bear his traits. But before J John gets into this, he starts with this reality. He wants them to understand the fact that they, that they actually are God's children. We actually are God's children. This is what he says in verse 1. Look at, by the way, just keep your Bibles open or keep the apps open because we're, we're just going to follow along with the passage here. Verse 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. I love that bit at the end, and so we are. He's saying that the love of God is such that his love made us his children. And this is what we are. In other words, God has, because of his love, God has given us his name and his status, right? Verse 1, he's given us his name, that we should be called the children of God. Verse 2 uh, he's given us his status. We are the children of God. This is why we're calling our talk this morning the children of God, name and status. Now, what we have in the English version here, it doesn't really do it justice, you know, see what kind of love the Father has given us. In fact, the word that he uses here is more like, look, or, or behold. Like, I don't know any other way to put it. That. It's an exclamation of, look at this. Check. Can you see this? It's, it's an expression of, you need to see this. And then he says, what kind of love? What kind of love? Now, I don't know if you're familiar with this story, but, but in Matthew chapter 8, the, the disciples of Jesus, they're out on the boat with Jesus, and uh, 
there's a big storm going on. And the, the disciples are freaking out because they're in the middle of the storm. And Jesus speaks to the sea and the wind and the storm calms, right? It, it turns to calm seas, calm winds. And the disciples say, what kind of man is this that he can speak to the sea and the wind and they obey him? What kind of man is this? And this is what John is saying. He's saying, look, what kind of love is this? What, what kind of love is this? We're the, we're the children of God. This is amazing. We should look at this kind of love and be amazed by it, be, be overawed by the fact that we weren't his children and now we are his children. It's not like any other sort of love. It, he's saying, look, this love isn't like love that you've heard in the songs. This, I wonder if they had love songs back then. Presumably they did, I don't know. But this isn't, this isn't the kind of love you've seen in, 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 in stupid films or, or stupid songs. This is something completely different. Because this love has chosen us and made us the children of God. What does this mean for us to become the children of God? I think we need to go back, take a few steps back and think about, well, who we were. The Bible says we were far off from God. We were actually enemies with God. We were rebels to God, right? There was nothing. So we were completely undeserving of his, of his love. And even if we did deserve it, we probably would have thrown it back in his face. That's what the Bible tells us. But this love, what kind of love? This love that has turned rebels into children. Galatians 4 tells us that we've received adoption as sons and daughters. Isn't that cool? That means that, and I don't have time to go into, if we were studying Galatians, I would, but we don't have time to go into what that means. But really what that means is, uh, in the legal sense, in that Roman, under Roman law back then, adoption meant that you go from being nothing to receiving all the rights and privileges of the family, right? So what John's saying here is that uh, John's saying here is that actually you went from being an enemy of the family of God to being written into the will. So you had nothing; you were completely outside of it. To now you have the keys to the kingdom. Now you've been given the keys to the kingdom again. You've been written into the will, and we need to remember that this this love. It was motivated, or this, this choice lay entirely with the family. It was motivated entirely by his love. We didn't even want his love. There was nothing desirable uh, or deserving in us, but God chose to love us anyway because he is love. And this is why John says, look, what kind of love is this that has made us the children of God? And that's what we are. He says, so we are God's children. I mean, I feel like I could stop there and that would be, some people were like, I just stopped there. <laughs> no, we'll persist. Um, what kind of love is this? We're God's children. But look at verses two and three, and he starts to unpack this a bit more. He says, beloved, that's his language, that's his fatherly love. Actually, interestingly in the Greek, you know, this, what kind of love he calls them, when he calls them beloved, it's like, this kind of love, you are all of that love, we are all of that love, this love. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall, be like, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. For John, this is a present reality, right? We are God's children now. But it's a reality that we have now that impacts our future. So he's saying that uh, if God has chosen us to make us his kids, right, he's not just going to leave us to it. He's not just, God doesn't make orphans. He's not going to leave us to it. He's saying, you have a future reality that hasn't yet come to, into being, but it's secure because God isn't going to just leave you to it. God makes us his children and he's going to bring us home safely. He's going to protect us. He's going to keep us. And this is what he's saying. What we will be has not yet appeared. We have a future that isn't, there's something that we will be that we aren't yet fully. And the, and the future is that we will be like him. This is what he says. We will be like him. There's a time coming in the future when we will see Jesus fully for who he really is. And in that day, we will be like him. Not that we will be the same as him, but we will be like him. And that's what God is doing with us now. He's making us more and more like Jesus, right? 
And so if this is our future hope, and this is where we start to get into the meat and bones of, of what we're talking about today. If this is our future hope, our future hope is that we are going to be fully like him, then let's start now, right? If our future hope is built on Jesus, then let's start now. John Stott, a great teacher, puts it this way. He says, if heaven is the destination, we must be traveling the road that leads there. I think that's great. Like, if heaven is a destination, we must be traveling the road that leads there. And this is what John means when he said, in verse 3, he says, that everyone who hopes in Jesus will purify themselves in the same way that Jesus is pure. In other words, if we are his children, we'll be fully like him one day, so let's start living that way now. We go into the family business now. Knowing that, the inheritance will be fully ours someday. You see, for John, likeness is proof of relationship. Likeness is proof of relationship. So my kids are like me because they're my kids. So Abigail um, is, is as stubborn as an old goat because she's my daughter. And Finley is soft and mushy and really sensitive because he's my son. Likeness is proof of relationship. And if we say we're God's children, then we're going to prove it by our godliness. We are godliness proves that we know God, that we are God's children. And, and I want you to hear me on this. Uh, I, I just step out of that for a second. God's not, or John's not implying that we have any part to play in our salvation. That's not what this is about. He's not saying that we earn our way into God's family. He's saying that because we're God's children, we will live like we're God's children. So when I was a teenager, before I would go out anywhere, my dad would say to me, uh, I used to hate it so much. He'd say, remember whose you are. Remember whose you are. In other words, he was reminding me that whatever I do, I carry the family name, and so the reputation of the family rests on my shoulders. And it's the same for us that have Christ's name, right? We carry the reputation of the family of God, and so we should live like it. And so this is what John's saying here in these first three verses. As he opens up this section about being God's children, he says, God's love has made us his children. That was his choice. We are God's children, and because we're his children, we should live like it. That's what he's saying. But I want us to think then, well, what does that look like? What does it mean to be God's children? Because in some ways it sounds kind of trite, doesn't it? It sounds kind of like flippant. Oh, we're God's children. Yay. But that's not what John's talking about at all. For John, this is a deep reality with deep consequences. And so he gives us, uh, this is where we get to our vital signs of today. I think in this passage, John gives us three distinctives of what the children of God are like. Three vital signs of what the children of God are like. How do you know you're a child of God? Look at these three things. First one, we don't practice sinning. Uh-oh, that's hard. We don't practice sinning? What, are you sure? Yeah, let's read it. Verses four to 10. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he, as Jesus, is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. What? For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. You see, for John... There's a lot of harsh language in there. And that doesn't mean that we should avoid it. It means that we should unpack it and understand it. And if it's harsh, then let's apply it even though it's harsh. For John, once you're a Christian, you don't go on sinning. It's that simple, right? There's a change that happens. You're not the same. After all, how could we be? We're God's children. We've been taken out of one family tree and engrafted into his. If you like, we have his DNA in us. We have his blood running through our veins. I'm not saying that literally. I'm saying that's a... <laughs> Uh, an illustration. I hope they get that. Um, and that means with his DNA that we start to behave more and more like him. So last year, my sister was going through uh, treatment for leukemia, and uh, I had to get tested. Me and my sister had to get tested to see if we could uh, be a bone marrow donor, right? 
Ah, Chad's in the room. I was hoping he wouldn't be because he'll know if I'm talking nonsense or not. Uh, but one of the things, so what they do is they take healthy bone marrow out of your um, femur and they put that into the person who has leukemia because uh, your bone marrow generates uh, white blood cells and that's the part where there is cancer in leukemia. And so then that bone marrow, the healthy bone marrow starts to generate healthy white blood cells, okay? But one of the crazy things that happens is that Sometimes when the person who receives the bone marrow, they start to take on the traits of the person who has received it. No, the person who has given it. So if it didn't, it didn't come to this in the end, but if I had given uh, my sister uh, bone marrow, she could start to develop things like the same taste as me. So she just loved like beer and steak and stuff like that. Um, isn't that really funny that you start to actually take on traits like this person who's received a part of you? I think that's amazing. But it's like that with, it's like that with Christians, right? We've become the children of God. We're transplanted into his family. And so, of course, we become like him. How couldn't we be? And that means that we no longer practice sinning because verse 5, what does verse 5 say? In him is no sin. In him there is no sin. He appeared to take away sin because in him there is no sin. Now, let's be clear. John isn't saying that we'll never sin. That, that would be impossible. He's not saying, and we need to be really careful he's, he's, that we don't read it that way. He's not saying that once you become a Christian, you're never going to sin. You're never going to mess up. You're never going to get jealous. You're never going to get unright, like, unrightly angry. You're never going to you know, uh, be jealous. You're never going to lust after something. You're never going to cheat on, on something. He's not saying that at all. Look at the language he's using. Verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Verse seven, whoever practices righteousness. Verse eight, whoever makes a practice of sinning. Verse nine, no one born of God makes a practice and he cannot keep on sinning. Whoever does not practice righteousness. John's using this ongoing language, right? Practicing, making a practice, keep on. And what he's saying that Christians, us, the children of God, we don't make a practice of sinning. It's not the norm for us, right? Something has happened. Sin doesn't become the pattern. It's not the pattern anymore, right? At the very least, we have a different attitude to sin. So we might struggle with the same thing over and over again, but our attitude is that we want to get rid of it. We want to get over it. We're, we're desperate to have this thing gone from our lives. It's not that we're suddenly perfect. It's that we have the perfect one dwelling in us. And see, John is writing this because these false teachers, they were saying, well, you can love Jesus and just keep on doing what you were doing. That's all good. You can just ignore your sin. You could, you can, oh, you're cheating on your taxes? That's fine. Be a Christian and do that. That's no problem. And John said, no, you're completely missing the point here. When you become a child of God, you're in a different family and you start to act like him. You see, and this is going to sound really old-fashioned, but I don't care because it's what the Bible says. You can't be a follower of Jesus and be indifferent to your sin. You just can't. Because in Jesus, there is no sin, and you are in Jesus, and Jesus is in you. Um, we, don't, we, don't really, we don't really get par cuts anymore. I don't know if that's now because I live in Belfast and not in the country where I grew up. But when I was a kid, it seemed like we got par cuts all the time, like in winter. Um, up in Valmina. Um, I think we just got the internet last week. Um, but in the winter, uh, you get par cuts. And I used to love it. It was really exciting because, uh, you know, mom would get the candles out and all that kind of stuff. You have to boil a kettle over the fire. It's class. Anyway, um, <clears throat> imagine there's a par cut in your house, right? And you go into your living room with a candle, a lit candle. And when you walk in there with the candle, it lights up the whole room, right? We've talked about this idea of light and darkness before. You go in with a candle, it lights up the whole room. Now imagine if you left the room with the candle and the room stayed lit. Could that ever happen? No. The room is only lit because the candle is in it. And if, if, if it did stay lit when you left with the candle, that would mean that the room had somehow become independent of the light, right? And that, 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 it doesn't make sense. The room only stays lit as long as the candle is in it. And it's the same for us. Our hearts only stay in the light because the light of Christ dwells in us, right? We haven't developed the ability to be light in ourselves. We always have this tendency towards darkness. We always have a tendency towards sin. But we're constantly dependent on the light of Christ that dwells in us. The presence of Christ in us 
gives us a new tendency to counteract the tendency towards sin. Does that make sense? We haven't developed somehow the idea or the ability to just not to stop sinning altogether, but we have the light of Christ in us. Christ dwells in us so that, we're, that, that tendency towards sin is counteracted. And this means that when John says we no longer practice sinning, it means that we don't have the habits of sin. We want to get over our sin. That tendency towards sin is counteracted by Jesus dwelling in us. John tells us in verse 6 that no one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning. It's through Christ dwelling in us and us dwelling in Christ that we don't go on sinning. In fact, John says that for anyone who's truly a Christian who really knows Jesus and who really abides in Jesus, you can't make a practice of sinning because the life that we now have isn't ours. Our nature has been changed. Our desire isn't towards sin anymore. Why? Look at verse 9. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. That's what I'm trying to tell you guys. We're in a new family. We've had a new birth, so we can't keep on sinning. And this is a vital, tangible, uh, a, a tangible vital sign for John. A real sign that Jesus really lives in you is that you're going to change. Listen, we're not perfect. I was just saying the other night, like one of the weird things about what I do is I have to get up in front of you every Sunday and you all know, a lot of you know, some of you more than others, the ways that I mess up every single day. We're not perfect. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. We're going to keep on failing. We're going to keep on making mistakes. But every time we do, right, we don't get hung up on it. We don't, we don't get caught up in our guilt. No. We remember that our sin is forgiven. We, we remember the cross of Jesus and all our sin and guilt and shame is dealt with. And so we don't go on sinning. We, we strive to not go on sinning because of what he has done. And then gradually, you know what happens? We start to grow. We start to change. We repeat the same sin less and less often. We, we, make the, we fall into the same pitfalls less and less often. This is what the Bible calls sanctification. We become quicker to confess our sin. We recognize it quicker. We're quicker to remember the gospel. Quicker to remember what Jesus has done. And this is why we tell ourselves the gospel. This is why we tell each other the gospel, right? We say, it's okay that you've messed up like, well, it's not okay, but you've messed up like that? Fine, remember the gospel. Your sin is forgiven. Remember what Jesus has done for you. And remember that our hope and our assurance is that one day we will see him fully and we will be like him. Jesus is gonna complete that work in you. This is what we do. And through this, by practicing this, we don't make a habit of sinning over and over and over again. So, we don't practice sinning. That's our first characteristic of the children of God. The second one is, we love one another. John's talking about our nature as the children of God. You're the children of God because God loves you, uh, so don't go on sinning. But then at the end of this section, in verse 10, he gets it really specific about maybe one area, particular sin, that seems to be quite important in the church he, churches he's writing to. For John, there's something, something special and unique and important about the relationships that we Christians share with one another that's so precious and sacred that if we don't love one another, we're not really of God. This is what he says in verse 10. He says, the person that doesn't love his brother or sister isn't of God. And so in the next section, he goes on to repeat that, that common command he talks about over and over again in this book, that we are to Love one another. Been hit hard by this this week. Let's read uh, verses 11 to 18 together. I, I know I'm reading big chunks, but it's good. For this message that you have heard from the beginning, for this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. Hope none of you are murdering each other. Uh, and why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Wow. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children. Let us not love the world 
Not, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. See, for John, one vital sign of spiritual maturity is the depth of our relationships that we have with one another, right? The depth of the love that we have for one another. John says, remember the message you've heard from the beginning. We've heard him say this over and over again in this book. He said, don't forget what you've learned. Don't forget the command that you received when you received Jesus. And what is that? Love one another. This is what something happens when we receive Jesus, that we're drawn to love one another. And he's been over this before and he comes back to it again because it's so, so important. You're God's children, therefore your brother and sister, therefore you love one another. Simple. In this family, in the family of God, we love one another. Why? Because our Father has loved us and we're becoming more and more like him so we love one another. But I think it's really interesting what he does here in verses 12 to 14. He talks about one specific example of how not to do this. I think it's really good. He talks about Cain and Abel. I don't know if you're familiar with the story. If you want to read it, you can read it in Genesis chapter 4. But these two brothers, Cain and Abel. And Cain makes a plan and he goes out and kills his brother Abel. But notice what John says. He says that Cain didn't just kill Abel because Cain was evil. He actually killed Abel because Abel's deeds were righteous. So what is he saying here? He's saying that there's, he's drawn a comparison between people who are in God and people who are not of God. And just as Cain was not of God and hated his brother who was of God, don't be surprised when the world who aren't of God hate you because you are of God. There's something about us that makes us hateable to people who don't know God. Cain, the things that he used to describe Cain, Cain was of the evil one. His deeds were evil. He hadn't passed from death to life. But we, the church, are the opposite. We are of God. Our deeds are righteous in Jesus. We have passed from death to life. And so just as those who abide in, still abide in death, hate, are full of hate, we who are no longer in death, love. That's the thing that marks us out, right? They hate, we love. And John is saying all this to say that we are not like the world. We are no longer in the evil one. We are in God. We are the children of God. And so we love one another. Why do you think he's, he uses the example of murder? Because he's trying to drive this home. This is how important this is. This is a vital sign that Jesus actually lives in you. Look at what he says in verse 14. We know we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. And so the challenge for us is this. Do we love each other the way brothers and sisters are meant to love each other? In fact, sometimes I think we have to take a step back and ask ourselves, do we see each other as brothers and sisters? Seriously, I, I, I've been hit hard by this this week. Do I see you guys as my brothers and sisters? Because that's the key to this whole thing. These people are, why, this is why he starts by saying God's love has made us his children. Because if we've all been made his children, then we're all brothers and sisters. These people around you are your family. They're your brothers and sisters. We all have the same father. Listen, I can, I can stand up here as much as I want to. Uh, any of us can and talk about church's family and brothers and sisters. But the truth is, unless we start to see each other as brother and sister, it's always going to feel like a burden to love one another. Unless we actually grasp the reality that we are of the same family, it's always going to feel like a burden to love one another. But once we get this, it changes everything, right? It changes how we serve each other. It changes how we listen to one another. It changes how, how we're keen to understand what the other person's point of view is. It changes how we respond to each other's needs. It changes how we, how we view members of the opposite sex. Right? Men in particular, talking to you, do you see these women around you as just something to be stared at when you think nobody's looking? Or do you see them as your sisters in Jesus? So let me ask you again. Do we see each other? Do we love each other? as brothers and sisters are meant to love each other. And when the world sees us, is this what they see from us? We're brothers and sisters and we love each other, but what does this really look like? Because sometimes, sometimes what we think loving something is and actually doing it are two really different things, right? 
So I used to say, uh, nothing quite like marriage to teach you how selfish you are. And then we had kids. <laughs> There's nothing quite like being married, having a partner to show you how selfish you are. And there's nothing like being, having kids, having we people that depend on you to show you that it's easy to say you love somebody, but it's really, really hard to actually do it. Anybody that has ever has any kind of family, I don't mean kids or a wife or a husband, I mean anybody that has ever been, had, had parents or a brother or sister or friends or anything like that, you'll understand this. And I think that what John is saying here at the end of this section, he's saying, if he were writing it today, he would probably say something like, talk is cheap, put your money where your mouth is. You see, for John, loving one another involves dying and doing. Dying and doing. It's not enough to just say you love one another. It involves serious commitment. It involves effort. It involves sacrifice. Firstly, it involves dying. Verse 16, by this we know love, that he Jesus laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers or brothers and sisters is the actual word there. In other words, John said, look, we know what love looks like because we've seen Jesus. We've seen how Jesus loves and what did that look like for him? He gave up his life. He laid down his life. We've seen in previous weeks that John really likes to just kind of take what, G- what, what, what Jesus taught him, you know, Whenever he was following Jesus around in his ministry and then just teach that again. And this is what he's doing here. In John 15, Jesus says this, greater love has no one than this than somebody lay down his life for his friends. <laughs> lay down his life for his friends. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but when you read that, I think to the uh, slow motion, take the bullet dive. <sighs> you know that one? That's what I think of. Like, I'm laying out my life. And I like to think that I could do that. I like to think that I'd take a bullet for any one of you. Maybe not to him. I would. No, give it to him. I'm joking. But like, I'd like, I like to think that I'd take a bullet for any one of you. And I think we all like to think of that. Finley running around like, Spider-Man's got me all heroed in my head. But like, we think that we could lay down our lives for each other. And that's fine. But what about in the everyday, non-hero sense of laying down your life for, every, for your brothers and sisters? What about that? What about the non-heroic circumstances? What about putting your needs after the needs of your brothers and sisters? Because we're so selfish. And we get caught up in our own little worlds. And I need to make sure I've done this. And I need to make sure I'm okay. And I need to make... What about laying down our lives repeatedly for our brothers and sisters? What about giving up your only day off to help your brother or sister move house? What about giving up your date night to go and, and, and comfort your, your, your brother or sister who's in need and just needs a shoulder to cry on? Because these are the things that are gonna mark us out as different. These are the vital signs that we actually have life in Jesus. And this is where John meets dying with doing. Verse 17, he says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother or sister in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? For John, it's just like, this doesn't make sense because I, I know what it looks like when God's love abides in you. He's saying, if you ignore the needs of your brothers and sisters, then you don't really have the love of God. You haven't really grasped it. See, it's that simple for John. It's not just about your words. It's not merely something we talk about. It's about dying and doing to love one another because God loves us. And as we're going to see next week, God is love. Um, I think that the world should look at us and they should have that same reaction that John had. What kind of love is this? Wouldn't that be cool if the world looked at our family, our church family, and said, what kind of love is this? I've never seen anything like this before. I was reading a, I was reading a thing this week uh, put out by the Association for Psychological Studies, just because, why wouldn't I? And uh, they've done this, they did this study last year, and they found, I'm going to read this because I want to get it right, uh, talking about individualistic tendencies. And across the world, there's only two countries in the world where individualistic tendencies are rising. Household sizes are getting smaller. People are marrying later, if at all. It's now seen as shameful in our society to live with your parents, isn't it? You're 30 and you live with your, your parents? What's wrong with you? Here's one that's really going to stick with you, I hope. 
Almost 10% of people aged between 16 and 24 said that they are always or often lonely. 16 to 24 year olds, they're in the prime of their lives. And what this tells us, what it tells me is that the command of Jesus to love one another has never been more relevant. Our society is, is, is now more than ever driven by individualism and so for us to step outside of that and to put others first is more countercultural than ever. And for this reason, I think that it's in this time, in this place, that when we love each other as brothers and sisters, we paint this vibrant picture of what the kingdom of God is like and people are compelled to come to King Jesus, the very one that makes this all possible. This is why we love one another, because we are God's children, because it's our mission to love each other. John was this really old man, and we've talked about this before. Don't worry, I'm almost on to my last point. I've talked about this before. John was this really old man when he wrote this letter. Too old to go around preaching, so they used to bring him out in front of the church, and I like to imagine it goes something like this. They bring John out in one of those really, I don't know what the wheelchairs were like back then, but one of those really big wheelchairs, and he's like a wee frail old man covered in a mountain of blankets, you know. You know when old people get like that? Just blankets everywhere. A real long, spindly, white beard. That stretchy skin that old people get in their hands. And they bring him out and they set him in front of the church. This is how it happens in my head. And he looks at them. And he smiles. And he pleads with them. And this is what he pleads with them. Verse 18. Little children. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So we as the children of God are distinctive because we don't practice sinning and because we love one another. And our third and final vital sign for today is this. The children of God, we have confidence before God. Verses 19 to 24. By this we shall know that we are of the truth. And reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. What's John teaching us here? Firstly, I want to point out this word he used for heart. This word heart, it literally means your inner being, your soul, your conscience. And he's saying that when your conscience condemns you, God is greater than your conscience. And so we have this confidence that we can approach God in prayer. Have you ever had times when, um, you ever had times when you're praying and all of a sudden your conscience says to you, Stuff like, who are you to be asking God for that? I, I know what you did last night, or what you really think you're, God's going to listen to you, because I know what you were thinking about him the other day. Do you ever, do you ever get that? Because I find in my life that there's nothing that'll shut down or prevent me from praying more than the belief that God doesn't want to listen to me. Do you ever get that? Do you ever sometimes think God doesn't want to hear me? But look at the kind of words that John uses here. He uses words like know and reassure and confidence. He wants us to know that because we're in the family of God, we can confidently pray and ask God, our Father, for what we need. It goes like this in these verses. He, he says, we have believed in Jesus, so we're in the family of God. And so as obedient children, we love others in the family. And since we're in the family and love others in the family... We can come to our Father with the assurance that He's going to hear us. Listen, I really want you to grasp it this morning. God's willingness to hear your prayers is dependent on His goodness, not your holiness. Can I say that again? God's willingness to hear your prayers is dependent on His goodness, not your holiness. See, your ability to be good living or do the right thing or to avoid sin doesn't affect God's willingness to, to listen to you. That's not how this works. That's not what John's saying here. Now, of course, the more often we come to God in prayer, then it's going to make us less and less inclined to sin and, and our relationship with God's going to deepen, of course. But that doesn't mean that we, we have to strive to clean ourselves up. 
that there's somehow a better chance of God wanting to listen to us if, if we've been better behaved. That's not how this works. You're God's child. He's your father. He never turns his back on you. It's always his delight and pleasure to hear you and answer you. So don't let your sin like, prevent you from coming to God. Remember the gospel. Remember what we learned in chapter one a couple of weeks ago, that, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Faithful and just. Faithful means he always will, and just means he always can. I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like I'm making no progress in my walk with Jesus at all. I, I just keep falling into the same sin over and over again. I'm like, man, what are you doing? And so often our hearts condemn us in this way. But, and then the crazy thing about when our conscience gets to us like this, your conscience knows exactly how to prick you, doesn't it? Because you know your sin more than anyone else does apart from God. Actually, that's how you can tell the difference between if, if, if Satan's uh, accusing you or if your conscience is telling you something because he comes to us with accusations and falsities. But when your conscience pricks you, it's usually true. And we should listen to our conscience. But not listen and fall into despair and, and a spiral of guilt of how bad we are. We listen to our conscience and then we apply this truth from verse 20. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Guess what? God is greater than your heart. You don't know everything. God does. And John doesn't tell us to just shrug off our insecurities and our sin or, or, or just to ignore them or to, just to, to give ourselves a wee pep talk or, 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 or apply some, uh, some life coach stuff. No. He said when your heart is condemning you, meet the challenges head on. Not in your own strength, but in the truth that God is greater than your conscience and he knows everything. He knows your weakness more than you do. He knows, that you're not, he knows your failing more than you do. You're not perfect, but Jesus is. Can I tell you this? You know, on the cross as Jesus died, do you know what happened? All those things that are coming into your head that you're thinking about as I'm talking about sin, all those things, all the shame that comes from that and all the guilt that comes from that, he took that and put it on himself. And then he took all his goodness and purity and righteousness and put it on you. And so this is what Martin Luther calls the great exchange. And so when you come before God in prayer, you know what God's, God doesn't see your sin, your guilt and shame. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. So why would we ever be hesitant at coming to God? Why would we ever let our sin prevent us from, from relationship with the Father? Because, because our sin and our guilt and our shame has all been paid for and taken away. Past, present, and future. And what's the result of this? Verse 21, we have confidence before God. Confidence before God. This is a mark of somebody that really knows Jesus. I love it. People who can confidently stand before God, not pretending to be perfect, but just simply relying on the one who is perfect. I don't have it sorted. I sin, sure. But I'm in Jesus, and he's perfect, and he's taken all my sin. This is why we say, and we sing, well, I will not boast in anything, but I will boast in Jesus Christ. This is, all, this is the only plea we have. And we don't have time to go into it, and I really wish we did. But it's through this confidence that we can actually uh, have the strength to go on obeying his commandments. It's only through standing in his righteousness, that confidence and assurance that comes from his righteousness, that we can, can as verse 23 says, uh, believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. God loves us. We're his children, and so we don't go on sinning. We love one another and we have confidence before God. Isn't that a cool message? And this is our hope this morning. And our, uh, on the first Sunday we were here, I said, um, the only thing we have to offer is Jesus, right? And I'm saying it today and I'm probably gonna keep saying it. Because it's always gonna be true. That's the only hope we have. And maybe if you're not a Christian this morning, maybe this has pricked some things for you. Maybe you're thinking about some stuff. I want to tell you that this is available to you, right? This is, if you're not a Christian, or maybe, you've, maybe you, you used to be a Christian or you used to think you were a Christian or something like that, or 
But you don't have to keep on struggling with the same, same old patterns of, of, of messing up and failure. You don't have to go on carrying the same guilt that comes from that. The Bible, you know what the Bible says? The Bible says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So all you have to do is simply just believe that Jesus is what he says he is. That, that he loves you and that he, he, he died and rose again. And when he did that, he beat sin. He beat death just so you can have true life. So let me finish by saying this before we come to the table. Can we just, can we just as brothers and sisters recognize that we are actually brothers and sisters? Can we start treating each other in this family like we are actually brothers and sisters? Can we learn to die and to do for one another because that's exactly what Jesus has done for us? Can we remember that we're the children of God and just lean into him? It's not, it's not my strength. If, if I'm trying to love you like my sister or my brother in my own strength, I'm gonna mess up, I'm gonna fail. But let's lean into the strength that comes from knowing that, that Jesus took our guilt and our shame and our sin and gave us his righteousness and lean into him for the strength that we need to, to learn to live like him because that's our assurance, isn't it? Remember back at the start of this passage. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Let's rely on that hope. Let me pray for us and I'm gonna get Tom and Laura to come back up. Uh, Father God, I wanna thank you that it was because of your extraordinary love that you decided to make us your children. We didn't deserve it. We didn't desire it. You chose us out of your goodness to adopt us into your family. And Father, I pray that we would learn the reality that we are brothers and sisters. Lord, help us to rely on your strength, not our own strength, to not fall into the same old patterns of sin over and over again. Father, I pray that we would learn how to love each other the way you have loved us. Father, teach us that we can come to you confidently in the assurance that we're your children, that you love us, that you'll never forsake us, that you always want to hear from us. And Lord, help us now as we come to the table, just remember your sacrifice that made all of this possible. May our only boast ever be in Jesus. We love you, Lord.